What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode 195 of the Justin Inside podcast, a show where we talk to people involved in the world of alternative music and their journey through it. As always, my name is Tim Bertbeck. I am your host and guide through said podcast, and I'm recording in advance for a change. Um, it's the bank holiday weekend here in the UK, so I'm actually going away and seeing some friends because we're allowed to do that now. So. Yeah, recording this in advance, so not going to be too specific on stuff because there might be stuff going on over the weekend that I miss out on. So, yeah, just a bit of a timestamp on where this is coming from in terms of me recording the intro. Um, There are a couple of things I do want to say off the top. Uh, I'm sure many people have seen, but obviously we mentioned it when it happened, but the sad passing of Power Trip vocalist uh, Riley Gale was something that kind of like shook the hardcore scene and sort of like made ripple effects all across sort of alternative music in general. Um, now the, I believe it was the coroner's report kind of came out about the cause of death, which having been a trained journalist, I know these things are quite sort of difficult and like, unfortunately news outlets do report them. I don't know how things are done in America that like in terms of, uh, the the access for press and things, but that's kind of by the by. Basically, the, the report kind of came out and the website Metal Sucks, which the name basically sums up who they are, decided to print the whole fucking thing in full, which is just completely disrespectful. So, yeah, fuck that site. Like, if you support them, fuck you. Like, that's just so, like, yeah, they're just, just trying to get clicks and traffic to their site and it's just so unnecessary so yeah metal sucks fuck you um that's all i'm gonna say i'm just gonna shout out a couple of bands that i've been listening to recently uh the new portal album came out on friday it's fucking weird and disgusting which is to be expected of them um new Nocturne record which is the uh sort of black metal solo project from Serena from Svalbard it's entirely Skyrim themed so if you like your computer games and you like black metal go check that out uh new Neighborhood Brats record really cool just like dirty scuzzy punk um and a new band that I kind of found out the new record came out through New Morality Zine who are I think I've shouted them out before but a label who are doing really cool exciting things uh Curse the Knife their record Thank You For Being Here came out on Friday it's it's hard to describe it's kind of like fuzzy indie punk but with a bit more grit I think that's the best way I can describe it um so yeah go check all of those out um as you can tell, we we are. I know I keep mentioning this. We are approaching episode two hundred. Um, I am looking to do a little giveaway for that. I'm just sort of working out the logistics. So keep an eye on all our socials for information about that when that drops. Right. Let's get into this week's guest. And this one was something I wasn't expecting to come out, but well, come out, come about. I should say. Um, but it was a really cool one to chat with. Uh, I speak to Colin Doran, who is the vocalist of uh, They Fell From The Sky, and most people probably know him from 100 Reasons. Uh, we discuss, obviously, the kind of history of 100 Reasons, them signing to a major label, the impact that kind of had on them, their sort of rise, and then the sort of anniversary shows that they did more recently. Uh, we also discuss how he kind of got into academia and working as part of the Guitar Hero franchise as well. And obviously we talk about how They Fell From The Sky kind of came to be and what his ambitions are with that project. So yeah, please sit back, enjoy the chat I have with Colin and I'll see you on the other side. Right, uh, so joining me this week on the Justin Insight podcast is vocalist of They Fall From The Sky and 100 Reasons, Colin Doran. Colin, thank you very much for taking some time to have a little chat with me. Um, how is everything with you? Like, obviously, new band on the horizon, well, newish band on the horizon, but obviously 
normal life as well how so how have you kind of been keeping in these weird times yeah it's kind of like the first question a lot of the time these days but that's not that's not a slight <laughs> yeah. by the way but um you know as i've said it already really i've been quite lucky i'm doing all right you know um i've got a house i've got a garden um i've got a family <laughs> yeah. around me um and i know that there's people that are a lot more worse off than i am um so mm. for me you know i've been really lucky um i've you know i've got a job um which i've you know, not had an issue with in any shape or form. So, yeah, um, yeah, feeling lucky. And a lot of people haven't been. That's cool. So I think it's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. Um, Obviously, I do want to touch upon like your job and stuff when we kind of get to it later down the line. But how I always kind of kick things off is to sort of like ask what kind of got you into alternative music in the first place. So what was your kind of exposure to it when, when you were younger? Oh, man, that was a long time ago. <laughs> I do know though, because you just know these things. Um, and it was probably Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. It was my gateway band. Nice. Very good gateway band. Sadly, friends of mine also went and got into bands like Extreme and Def Leppard. And I have <laughs> no issue being older with bands like Def Leppard. But at the time, it just didn't click for me. And looking back, De- yeah, Def yeah. Leppard are actually a brilliant band. Like, amazing, in fact. But I just never really got it because I was. I kind of went the heavier way. So yeah, yeah. I got into bands like Sepultura and Slayer, um, Sick of It All, Good Metallica, and <laughs> um, Faith No More was another big one as well in terms of sort of Mike Patton. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. the influence of a lot of people. But the mm. way he influenced me was just about not having any barriers to what you were doing. And when you listen mm. to such an eclectic record like Angel Dust, which is massively old now, um, it still holds up well in terms of creativity and inventiveness mm. is on it. So how were you kind of like getting into these bands? Like, was somebody kind of like recommending them to you? Did you have like family that was sort of into into that sort of thing as well? Or have you always kind of had like a, a curious nature sort of thing? It's just what was on the radio at the time and things like mm. that and then what you do is that's kind of like you say you just dip a little bit further down the rabbit hole and my first major gig was at Wembley Stadium with Guns N' Roses Faith and Royal Soundgarden so oh wow lineups don't really get better than that so <laughs> yeah that's gonna lead you in other areas absolutely so and it did um really sort of open my eyes to what else is sort of going on um and you know maybe before I was probably listening to a little bit of pop music a bit of like you know rap that kind of thing but that sort of music was what sort of lit the fire so to speak yeah and obviously we'll get into kind of like your role within the quote-unquote like uk scene at some point but like obviously you have been a big part of like the uk music scene for for many many years now but like when you were younger we because you've mentioned like bands like as you say like sepultura faith no more metallica Guns and Roses, they're all kind of from the States, but was there any bands over here that you were aware of that you were kind of like, oh, that's a bit more kind of closer to home sort of thing? I mean, I used to just go and see bands all the time. I loved bands like Sensor and Collapse Lung. Yeah. Bands like that that were doing the rounds back in the day and they were doing things just a little bit differently. Um, I went to see bands like A before I knew A. Um, yeah, I was very lucky enough to have a really good music venue near me in the form of the West End Centre, which was just phenomenal. So there was always bands to go and see. And me and my friend would go up to London and watch like those, you know, US hardcore bands. You know, one of our first shows was with a, a band called Stamping Ground, and they were just yeah, really yeah. cool. You know, just nice people. So, but I don't think the scene. You know, I think I think what the Americans take on board, which I think is something that you know I took on board, is that they they are good at what they do but they're also very sort of understanding of the fact that it's sort of the entertainment industry as well as the music Mm. industry so it kind of just I think I just learned a lot more from them than maybe I did from UK bands that at the time I suppose you know sort of a bit sort of more um sort of the shoegaze the indie scene was kind of happening and it wasn't you know bands like Blur were great um and stuff like that but I wasn't really sort of into it into it <laughs> um yeah, so yeah a lot of those bands you know that just wasn't really i suppose the uk scene you had to work quite hard to find those uk bands you know bands like earth tone nine which were amazing they were amazing i mean 
without being disrespectful because I know them and I love them they're wonderful people but they didn't sort of necessarily influence me it was more yeah 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 influenced me but Earth 10 I'm a phenomenal band and they were just a great band yeah but yeah there's, there's a lot of that about mm. so in terms of you kind of like exploring music yourself like obviously we know you as, as the vocalist that you are today but did you kind of dabble with with any other instruments or as as vocals always kind of been what interested you i'm just rubbish at playing musical instruments <laughs> so i had to go down the singing route because i wasn't going to be good at anything else and music at school it sounds very similar to myself but music at school was just at least back then i couldn't tell you what it's like now i can't remember the last time i went into like a, a secondary school but it was just rubbish and there was, yeah, there was yeah. no real um, cultivation of the person and what they wanted to do. It was just, you know, you just turn up to the lecture for like an hour a week. Um, so it was very tough to sort of feel inspired. And I think also when you're that age and you're still sort of trying to figure out even what music you like, you know, some people find that music sooner than others, absolutely. But you know you're not really going to come across that in the classroom necessarily you know at a secondary school mm. um so you have to do a lot of these things under your own volition and i didn't really have the facilities to be able to sort of or the inclination really to play guitar you know i bought a bass guitar at one point crap at it um <laughs> obviously i know you could have got better you could have tried harder but the interest to play um just wasn't there but the interest to sing was Mm. Um, and I guess that's the difference. That's just what you try to do, and you kind of explore what your what your voice is capable of, and use that as an instrument instead. And it was yeah, so, all right. So where did that kind of like, where did that come from? Like you say, like not being any good at sort of playing any in, other instruments, but was it like I don't know? Had you always had an inc inclination to like want to sing, kind of thing, or I, I think it's I like, don't know. Did, it's like what a lot of people do. You just you know, I don't know many people that don't sing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, whether you're good at it or not, I think that's open to interpretation. Um, but <laughs> yeah, but I just really enjoyed it. I loved singing. I loved doing it. And the more I sung, you know, the more I enjoyed it. So, mm. and then somebody says, you know, do you want to be in a band or something? Or you say, you know, can I come and sing in your band? And it kind of goes from there. And yeah, it's rubbish to start with. Of course it is. But you get better and you learn more as you do it. So it was just something that was just really good and enjoyable to do. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to actually do it. Mm. And did you, cause like you've got a very sort of distinctive voice. So did you kind of like, did you have lessons or anything or, or is it just kind of like practice through sort of perseverance kind of thing? I would say about 98% perseverance. I had four lessons <laughs> and the four lessons were really just more about how to take care of your voice and how to breathe. Yeah, and I needed. I did need some help with pitch, um, and that again came down to breathing and learning to place the note when you're yeah. intending to do what you want to do. So, and then the rest of it was just keep doing it, and keep doing it. When you're in a room with four other people playing really loudly, your voice gets pretty strong pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, you know, and, and when you're doing that as your job, which is your job, you know, you do it all day every day, then that helps and that builds it too. So. Mm. Yeah, it's just, again, it was just, I didn't really get any much in the way of training at all. You just, I kind of just started to learn that what, you know, you know when what you're hearing, whether it's right or wrong. And then you start yeah. to learn that when you're actually doing it, you start to learn whether it's right or wrong. <laughs> and I think that's, yeah. you know, part of it. And I think the thing for anybody that was in our band was just that kind of constant review of what we're doing to make sure that it's what it should be. Um, and that gets you better. Half of it's just, you know, most of things in life are learning from your mistakes if you can do that. But then mm. learning from them and then, you know, making sure you're acting it next time. So, and, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're playing live, it's a different environment every night. So you even get to a point where you understand what's kind of going on in your headspace. Um, and then you kind of almost know that you can, you can almost at some points, and we've done shows before, you know, you're singing from, from muscle memory rather than because you yeah, can't yeah. hear yourself. Because sometimes, you know, I think there was a show like York Fibbers or something back in the day, couldn't hear anything. Managed to, oh, you sung really well mm. tonight. I'm like, did I? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's all of that. And 
just in terms of like before we kind of get into like the the sort of hundred re- reasons years like obviously when you were sort of starting like to discover like oh this is something that I want to do this is something that I want to kind of pursue you and you mentioned sort of like friends asking you did you want to start a band because like they knew that you were like a singer sort of thing so were, were you part of like any other sort of like bands that I guess you kind of like considered like your first bands before 100 Reasons or was that kind of the first sort of jumping in point? Yeah, we did a band called Floor for a while. I mean, I was okay. in like a band with like a couple of mates before then. Um, I, I think half the time you can't even tell how it kind of came about. But mm. I, I mean, at least with Floor, somebody, uh, I mean, we, we all went to like the same nightclub or whatever, like same rock club. So it was kind of there. Somebody said, oh, do you know, want to come and hang out and you go yeah right and then floor kind of <laughs> mutated into something else i did some band in guildford which was nearby called elysium fields and they had this idiot guitar player in it who just wanted to be so controlling and it's like this is my song and it's just like yeah right oh really yeah. and i got sacked from that which is quite funny but um <laughs> not that i mind obviously i don't bear a grudge it's a long time ago but yeah you just um you know, people like that, you kind of start to think, well, that's not really what it's about. It's about having fun and being creative. He was like, mm. you know, you're not doing that right. I need exactly this note or exactly that. And I probably wasn't experienced enough or good enough at the time even either. So I can see all that happened. Yeah. But in the same respect, he was also a bellend. Um, <laughs> but the, the bass player was lovely and he was really nice. I seem to remember him. Um, so, you know, they're all sort of learning experiences. And yeah, I can't remember how I got into the first band. It was just people looking for a singer and then mm. half the band I think left because they just didn't want to do it anymore for whatever reason and then me and the bass player found some other people and the bass player went and then someone else came you know it's yeah you know you, it's very hard to kind of find your forever band straight away <laughs> yeah no I get to, that has to turn into it and just because you've mentioned obviously that like like going to sort of like see live gigs and things was a big part of of your kind of exploration and and sort of growing up and things but can you can you remember going to a show at any point not maybe a specific show but like a period of time when like you were going to shows you were like kind of thought because I, I guess like if your first show is like Wembley Arena it doesn't feel as attainable but did you kind of feel a point where you were sort of like oh no this is kind of like something I could do and then like started more actively pursuing it or have you always kind of wanted that want to perform live? I think the thing from my perspective was that I played music because I wanted to play music Mm. and we ended up sort of being managed and then that person was getting us more shows which was really good fun. I think it's one of those things where you don't necessarily look to see whether that's really going to happen or right. in your heart of hearts, you know, I think people at the time go, yeah, 100%, I've just believed it was going to happen. Fair play, mate. Well done. But <laughs> yeah. only when, you know, I was around, I was around my house and Larry came around with our manager and they just said, oh, Columbia, interested. And that was a bit of a whoa moment because when you're just mm. sitting in your room in Aldershot or whatever, and then your manager comes around and says that, oh, that's pretty damn cool. You know, so you start yeah. to get really excited. And I think that, was when it started to become a bit more real because mm. at that point you're just going out and playing shows and working really hard just to play music. And I don't think, I mean, I wanted to do it, but I didn't know a hundred percent if that was actually what was going to happen. Um, yeah. Because it's not necessarily something that's in your hands because mm. you know, a record company wants to make money out of you and you are a commodity <laughs> yeah. and that's okay. It is. It's genuinely okay because that's why it's called the music business. And they're more interested in making money out of you than you. And that's okay too, because yeah, yeah. that's how it is. So I was always kind of fine with that. But yeah, as to sort of expecting it, you know, I used to go to shows anywhere and everywhere. I mean, the stadium shows were kind of quite few and far between. You go to Milton Keynes Bowl or mm. watch Metallica. But generally, I was up at the borderline Camden Underworld watching any sort of bands that came through the door. You know, just, I mean... I used to go to like just hardcore shows. We were just really into hardcore bands and stuff like that. Mm. So I'd go and watch bands like Ignite, um, Sick of It All when they were in town. 
who are just like one of the most amazing bands ever made by man. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just brilliant singer at all. So just, and listening to those kind of hardcore records and Orange 9mm, Biohazard, which no disrespect to them, hasn't aged too well. But I mean, Punishment is still a tune. <laughs> mm, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Um, yeah, I think it, it, lyrically it hasn't aged well, is what I would say. No, yeah, okay, yeah, it definitely fair. hasn't aged well <laughs> lyrically. Punishment for all my sins. Oh. Um, <laughs> but in fairness, you know that band back then were just on fire, and they were so much yeah, fun yeah. to see live. And I saw them at the Marquee, Kentish Town Forum, Brixton Academy, that uh, Donington. They were just amazing. So yeah, it hasn't aged well in my opinion, but that didn't stop them being a shed ton of fun at the time, and that influences you too just in terms of mm. crowd interaction and everyone coming to have a really good time at a show uh, stuff like that so me mm. and my friend would just go out wherever if there was a band on five quid go and see three bands let's just go all right you know and then we'd go see beastie boys or something like that it just didn't matter just go and see shows yeah. go and watch bands go and love music and that's what it was about mm. and just if we go on to sort of hundred reasons and and how that kind of started to sort of grow and things like i always find it interesting like bands in their kind of embryonic stages because i think like obviously a lot for a lot of people the jumping in point was ideas above our station but obviously before that record even came out you had like numerous eps and and things like that so like when you kind of all first started getting in a room together, like, did you have an idea of like what you wanted the sound to be like, or did that just kind of evolve as you got more familiar with yourself, like as a band? I think it evolved organically. And I think that what happened was we had like a transition. So we sacked our bass player who was in the previous band. The Andy mm. was a guitar player, but he just decided to do a bass course and became the bass player. Right. Okay. And then Larry came in and I think that was the moment that it kind of gelled quite considerably. I think something we were coming to, regardless of the bass player having to leave, um, I think we creatively we were starting to become a little bit stunted. And then so I think when sort of Larry came in, sort of bought in what you know his thing, and his thing was some of us are maybe a bit more metal, some are a bit more sort of indie, some are a bit grunge, you know, people in the band. And then Larry mm. sort of bought in this noise with him i think and i think what that did was that just gave us something it was just a bit more exciting and a little bit different to what everyone else was doing and i think yeah. the first practice we had i think we wrote the first song which i think was i think we wrote cerebra in the first practice that we had together as 100 reasons oh wow um and it just felt really good and really fun mm. um and then that's that's where it was and it kind of just went from there and mm. but at the end of the day, yeah, don't, we, I don't think we ever approached it with an agenda. It's just that we all had different influences and we brought all that to the table. And the idea is, is that, yeah. and I say this quite a lot, but whenever you're writing, just write music that you like. Don't worry about anything else. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about the genre. Don't worry about who it's going to please or anything. Write music that you're happy with. And if you can walk out and go, do you know what? I think that's great. Then all power to you and yeah, yeah. come to you. And I don't mean this to sound like in any way sort of disrespectful, but I guess it's kind of going to make sense because you said you were going to shows anywhere, like all over the shop. But like on the face of it, to see that a band is from Aldershot, there's not a whole lot, go like especially nowadays anyway, ha like going on and happening in Aldershot. So like when you were like a younger band was your first kind of thing like right we need to get out of all the shop we need to sort of go to london go to guildford and so on and so forth or did you kind of build up in your hometown and then expand it was a healthy mixture of both i mean all shop was really good because you know i was living with vex red and then you had reuben just down the road mm. in camberley and there's a really healthy local scene but what we didn't have is we didn't have this fixation on going to london and playing to nobody or playing to your friends that happen to have got on the bus with you to go to the show in London. Right, yeah. So we never went down that route. We, our first proper show, I would say, if I can remember rightly, probably would have been at the Exeter Cavern. And that was due to our manager okay. having connections down there. And Pippa and Dave are just wonderful in the way they treat bands. And 
it was just great. And I think it was like our first show was like supporting Stamping Ground. And again, oh, awesome. and we didn't know those guys very well, but you know, they were nice people. Um, and then we had a local um, show as well, which was uh, uh, the Agincourt Rock Club near us, which was supporting Pitch Shifter, um, hmm. which is ironic because obviously I've been in projects with Jason Bold. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mark Hayden's like one of my best friends, um, you know, so, you know, you, but, you know, they were nice to us too. They were just kind. Um, mm. So it wasn't about let's get into London because there's no point in going to London unless there's a reason to go to London. Our first London show was supporting a Canadian band called Kitty and they were, oh, yeah, yeah. and they were lovely. They were so bloody nice. It was unreal. Um, so, you know, you go there, you have a really good experience and that's kind of what started to get the ball rolling. Mm. And just in terms of like, I guess people kind of getting into the band and sort of like the growth of the band, as, as I said, like for a lot of people, their first exposure to you was ideas above a station, but like, was there a moment for you, like as the band started to grow that you can remember like, Oh, like this is like people like, outside of our immediate circle of friends are like starting to pay attention to this and like people are really starting to like dig what we're doing kind of thing. I think um, it's a tough one because, you know, with one of our first proper tours was with a band called Idlewild, who are again, just amazing mm. and lovely. So what we did was we didn't, you know, we went out is what we did. We didn't sort of just yeah. focus on, we were quite lucky in the fact that we had a pretty decent following locally because people were into what we were doing. But again, a lot of it's kind of like your mates and stuff and everything turning up. But what we did was we didn't worry about that. We weren't trying to impress our friends. We were trying yeah. to, you know, build an audience. And that meant getting out of town and we did a few gig swaps. I think there's a guy called Reuben Gotto, just a, another amazing human being up in um, Norwich, you know, and he used to promote shows at a place called Fat Paulie's. And, mm. you know, you go and play there and maybe you don't play to loads and loads of people, but you play to enough that they can go away and talk about you. So for us, yeah, again, yeah. it was just, it was just, if there's a show somewhere, go and play it. And we didn't mm. think too much about, um, like I said, our hometown, because stuff like that normally kind of takes care of itself. Because if you're playing locally enough, you should be building up an audience, but you need to yeah, of course. get out of town, but it doesn't necessarily mean go to London unless you have a reason to. So for us, it was just get out there and get on with it. And, you know, our manager at the time used to run like a local nightclub um, and he was the local promoter. So he put on shows and through those connections, we got other shows. So it was really organic. And I think, I suppose the tipping point is when you're, the tipping points when you're, you know, winning Best New British Band at the Karang Awards. Yeah, yeah. Simple as that. And and just, like, in terms of, like, that kind of period of time, like, so that was very much, like, formative years for myself. And, like, obviously, bands like yourselves, Hell is for Heroes, like, bands you've mentioned, like, Pit Shifter, Idlewild. Like, because this kind of, kind of goes back to what I was mentioning with, like, the UK scene. There was, like, this really like thriving like bed of uk bands that were like kind of not taking over from the u.s bands but like grabbed as much attention here in the uk as the u.s bands yeah well i think um i think the uk press started to support homegrown music a bit more yeah in fairness and i think those bands there's there was there was no shortage of really good bands in the uk it's just that they did get the exposure and I think around mm. our time, you know, when, you know, just before us, you've got bands like Limp Bizkit and Corn and all that, and they're doing quite well commercially, you know, Limp Bizkit like been at number one or something with Rolling. And so yeah, there was almost like a bit of a change in what people are used to hearing on the radio. So that automatically means if somebody's receptive to a riff that's heavier than what might be coming out normally, then record labels are sitting there with their eyes, you know, or their ears pricking up, so to speak, and thinking, well, Maybe there's something to be had from some UK bands that we can grow here and mm. they can get radio play because that's half the battle is sort of getting on the radio for some people. So if you've got yeah. a radio station like Radio One, Champion and sort of the rock, you know, rock bands and that kind of thing, um, because that's their thing, then more exposure you know, naturally comes from that. 
So the bands have always been, you know, bands like Ash, stuff like that as well, that were just great. And they were kind of just slightly more on the heavier side. So for me, like, I really liked Ash. And, you know, that's what people were um, willing to listen to. Whereas maybe before, mm. they might have been a little bit, oh, I don't want that on the radio. That's too noisy. But, <laughs> yeah. but the, the change in listener habits was there. So, mm. you know, you, you had that. You had that recognition. But, like, was it kind of interesting to like from an insider point of view like you mentioned obviously like supporting kitty and things like that but like being having the opportunity to tour with like uk bands and as you say like having that kind of exposure through like uk music press as i say there was kind of a, a more of an emphasis put on like the uk sort of scene especially like within like the music press so like being like on the inside of that like seeing like peers and yourselves getting more exposure and things did you notice that or like that there was more of a shift towards like homegrown stuff i don't think we looked at it that way i think the one thing that we were doing was focusing on what we were doing rather than mm. worrying about necessarily what everyone else is doing yeah and at that time we were already talking with with labels to be getting signed so or we might even have been signed but sort of knowing that, that sort of stuff is, is happening around you. It's not it's not always a good idea to focus on what everyone else is doing. It's like, like this is what we're doing right now. This is our plan. This is what we're going to go ahead and do. So I think we noticed it when, you know, other bands were, you know, like UK bands were getting more profiled, particularly in, pre in the press. But, you know, I wasn't really necessarily listening to the radio all the time back then uh, because you're busy doing yeah. things. So it's hard to see it outside. You kind of more see it inside when you know you pick up a magazine and you're in it and you're excited and other people you know's bands that are really good are in it too and you realize that they're it, it's it's almost something that was kind of you know created because people thought that there was something there and mm. you know and fair play to you know people um you know at, in the press at the time like Kerrang, like ashley bird emma johnson uh, Phil Alexander as well, people like that that were just getting behind these UK bands um, mm. and really championing them because they were good. And yeah, you know, and it's not to say that bands didn't compete with US bands before. It's just that you've got to be, you know, there's so much in the industry that's to do with timing. Oh yeah, and, definitely. And I think yeah, the yeah. timing was just right. Mm. And you mentioned earlier, like, kind of when you were sort of growing up, like you were kind of drawn a bit more to the, the American bands because they kind of had that element of almost like entertainment to, to what they were doing. And I think like when hundred reasons, like really burst on the scene, one of the things that was like massive was your live performance and like the energy and everything that you kind of brought to that and, and so on and so forth. And I don't want to say that like it was a conscious choice, but it, it might've been, but did you kind of, actively want to put a bit more kind of like quote-unquote showmanship yeah, to absolutely. what you're doing but... absolutely someone's paying good money to come and see you play play well put on a show mm. <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do that's your job that is your job no if someone's going to give you 15 20 quid a ticket whatever it is these days even 40 50 quid put on a bloody good show don't yeah no that's, around, that's you know. very valid you know just don't you know the only thing we'd always say before we went on stage and it was a joke I might just go, don't be shit. Because <laughs> it is, that, that's your, your job is to write good music because you've been given an opportunity to do it. Someone's got behind you to allow you to do this. People are out there paying. Give them what they, you know, give them yeah. what they should have, you know. And then um, the other thing that I always kind of find interesting is like people's sort of first sort of journeys on the road and you were kind of like saying like from the outset you guys always wanted to kind of go out there and, and do things but in terms of like actually sort of touring and things what was your kind of first experience like that like did you kind of have any preconceived ideas of what touring would be like did it live up to that like was it something that as soon as you did it you got the bug like what was it like when you're touring it's particularly in the early days it's all new and exciting mm. i've done it loads and i think um as you do it more and more, um, it can definitely take a toll on you mentally if you're not yeah. careful. But the thing for us was, to, again, you we knew why we were there. We weren't doing it to get drunk and get girls. We were doing it because yeah. we wanted to play music and we wanted to do this because we loved doing it. 
so that was the main thing at the end of it and and that's the kind of thing that keeps you going because you know and also as well lucky enough to sort of actually be in a band you know having a Mm. solo artist go on tour on their own i can't imagine what that person might be going through when they might be feeling like incredibly isolated so even though everyone around is kind of being nice that's what they're going to be but you know it's easy to miss people i think when you're on your own but when you're around people that you're trusting and you're on stage with every night you know you're all part of the same thing um it's an exciting and fun time and sometimes it's bloody mm. cold you know you sleep in the back <laughs> sleeping in the van on the way back from somewhere at three o'clock in the morning there's a lot of juggling to be done between day jobs and you know and and band life while you're sort of hopefully trying to make that transition so it, mm. it's definitely not glamorous but it's and sometimes at the time you said i think what the bloody hell did i do that for but <laughs> that doesn't but but at the time when you're doing it you're having a really good time mm. um and it's cool you know and you go and play a show and you get to see other people play as well and make, meet new people and have a good time and and that's for us that's what it was about and you touched on it briefly as well like the whole sort of columbia connection and i don't want to kind of dwell on it too much but i think like at that period of time like it was a, a period when there was still like record labels had money to kind of invest in bands and things like that yeah. and i think like because i don't know like it could just be how i perceived hundred reasons but like you were very much like kind of with ideas by Vassation, it was kind of there and then all of a sudden it was like everywhere everyone was kind of really digging it and stuff like that so what was it kind of like to be part of that machine and sort of like seeing the cogs ticking kind of thing? Well, it was just really good fun. So, you know, you've got a label at the time that's massively behind you, believes in what you're doing. There's a great, at that time, it was a great team of people that were working with us. Mm. So it was easy. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a bubble kind of life, so to speak. Yeah. Because it's, there's a lot going on and you're doing a lot. Um, but it was just, brilliant it was it was an amazing time and it's hard to sort i mean i don't look back on it at all with any regret in any shape or form it was just brilliant and that label Mm. at that time it was headed up by one of the most wonderful human beings ever blair mcdonald it was just brilliant so yeah it was what can i say that's it It it's great (laughs) and obviously like as the band sort of like progressed like kind of got bigger and then obviously and again don't mean this in any detriment but like things kind of like wavered yeah. and things like that and kind of came back up but like i don't know to be a, for, in a band that like has done like four records been touring all over and sort of a big part of a lot of people's kind of like introduction to alternative music and stuff i don't know like what was the kind of like ebbs and flows of it like being part of that and I, I don't want to say like do you regret it but like what was the kind of were there moments when you were sort of like you know what fuck this kind of thing I think there were towards the end but mm. you know sort of fourth album's just been delivered and then two weeks later you're dropped because the label itself has just been bought out by a major and then that major's like yeah nah not you guys thanks no thanks and that's not yeah. that's not a slight on the label even because I'm always quite open with the fact that I probably, you know, with, with certain songs at certain points, I think it's it's good to enjoy what's called a body of work. But to say that you love absolutely everything you've done 100% is a little bit blind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's definitely, you know, I, don't, I couldn't say 100%. I, I was proud of everything I did at the time. That doesn't mean that I'm always proud of things. And sometimes, you know, when you're in a, a democracy and you've got four other members you know, you have to sometimes suck it up and go, well, those four guys absolutely love it. So I'm going to do what I do and enjoy it and find another, yeah, yeah. Find an, another way to enjoy it or maybe get enjoyment from it because I know those four are enjoying it. Because you always have bits of songs and everybody's, you know, some songs we all love absolutely, but sometimes there's, you know, there's a song on the first record where there's a guitar line. I won't say what it is because I don't want it, but <laughs> there's a guitar line on one of our songs and I just cannot stand it and I've never liked it. The other guys in the band absolutely love it. And you go, well, all right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's about, you know, whenever you're making music, you write for the song. But, you know, the ups and downs are just kind of what, what happened. And some people have a smoother journey than others. 
our manager was always really good. So nothing ever came to us as a surprise. And also he told us straight off the bat, don't expect to do it forever. And he didn't mean it horribly. He just meant yeah, yeah. to even do four records is pretty amazing. When loads of bands don't even get past their first one. The second mm. one, wow, you've got the golden ticket. Three, you know, it's it's not very hard. It's not very easy to get to four records. So to have those out yeah. and, and do that, I can't, you know, I can't say I regret that. Mm. And then obviously in, uh, I think it was 2012, was it? You did, yeah, 2012 when you did the, the anniversary shows. Yeah. So kind of, I guess to kind of almost like revisit that and things like, firstly, how was it to kind of like go back over those with kind of like fresh eyes, but also like, was that, I don't want to say that was always the intention because like, obviously you don't know where the band's going to go, but like when that anniversary started creeping up, like were they conversations that were having way before like it was announced? Like how did it all kind of come about? Well, yeah, because you have to talk about stuff um, and you have to talk about stuff before it happens because Otherwise, you know, and these things take quite a long time to come about. And mm. and when you're going to do something, whatever it is you do, you have to you have you have to do it for the right reason. You have to know why you're yeah. doing it. And to come back and go, well, do you know what, let's just do a tenth anniversary, couple of shows or whatever, have some fun, blow off some steam, and have a great night with a bunch of great people. You know, we had some really good turnouts for those, they're all sold out. So from that perspective, yeah, it's a good idea, but it has to fit with something. It's not just, and the one thing we were very mindful of was to not then start getting to that flogging a dead horse mentality, which is we've done the shows. Yeah. Wow, everyone's turned up. We know why they've turned up. They've turned up because they want to hear the first record live. <laughs> yeah. And that's great because we want to play it. I want to hear a bunch of other songs as well. Great, because that's what we want to do. But then I think if you're not producing any new material, things like that, then you start to get into that world of diminishing returns. And then it devalues mm. the original shows that you did. So for us, it was, okay, that was a brilliant time. Good fun was had. See you later. Mm. And so before we kind of like accelerate to where we are now, like obviously once 100 Reasons kind of came to, to an end, before, like obviously before the anniversary shows, like... I don't know, because that was such a big part of your life, did you kind of, and well, I guess this can kind of be a segue into to your job now, but like, was there kind of a, an element for you, like, right, I need to take a back seat from like touring, being part of music, or did you kind of want to get back on the horse straight away? Um, no, I, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm a surprisingly easy person to keep happy. So... <laughs> So as long as I haven't really got anything to consider drama in my life, I'm generally all right. That that means I'm all right. <laughs> I don't live off of things like drama. I don't, you know, I spent a long time going on tour and a long time making records and having fun with a bunch of great people. So from that perspective, for it to be over, you know, at that point, it was fine because it was the right thing. And I, mm. I think that, again, it's not about, it's not about flogging the dead horse. It's not about trying to relive any sort of glory days because you're never going to really get that anyway because, you know, people move on, times move on. You know, most of our fans probably have kids, you know, <laughs> all that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. So, you know, those kinds of things. So from our perspective, it wasn't about our... Oh. And I think if you can go away from something on a high, which we did on that those 2012 shows, then it's it's okay to miss it but it's okay mm. to know why you're not doing it more. And I think we've we've seen it with a couple of bands that just reel it out and just play the show here and there. And it's a little bit of a, not a cash grab necessarily, because it's fun to play, but, you know, it's that whole kind of, ah, not really my thing. It's not really what I want to do. I think, leave, yeah, you know, leave with a, people with a smile on their face rather than, you know, where they go again. The only person that gets where we're coming <laughs> back like that is Aussie. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. people always love going to see Ozzy. You always enjoy the show. You'll have a great time, great musicians, you know, that kind of thing. He gets to do the final, 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 final tour. You know, <laughs> much like yeah. the Rolling Stones, last ever show, last ever show. But that's okay. People are fine with that. 
but if you're not in that world and you're not of that standing you don't really get to get away with it because you've got you know you, and you don't want to abuse a fan base that has been loyal previously and kind enough to come out again so yeah <laughs> and obviously like you're still obviously doing music and as i say i kind of want to talk about like your your job now obviously with um notting hill academy of music yeah. and your sort of role in that so how did how did you kind of like switch into that kind of like more like academic role and can you talk a bit about like what your role is now if that's okay yeah so i'm the vice principal um and it was kind of one of you kind of fall into it you fall into stuff like that mm. but i say this to people that i'm you know want to come on our courses i say you know when I was in the industry, I learned about it. I wanted to know where the money was coming from. I wanted to know what was in the contracts. I wanted to know what I was doing with the marketing. And I had an interest in it. And I just kept that. And then someone invited me in to do like a guest lecture somewhere. Really enjoyed it. Started doing a bit of teaching, you know, and then it, and then the teaching sort of took over, really. Um, and then I joined Notting Hill in 2017, I think. Um, and then just kind of moved on from there. But it's a great place. It's a really good place, fun place to work. I work with some brilliant people. Um, you know, my boss is a guy called Shabstrev and Pucha runs Relentless Records, you know, which is oh, cool. Tom Walker and Heady One, people like that. So you're always around genuine music industry people. Yeah. Which is what I think is really cool about my job. So although I'm kind of what you might call in the education sector, I'm still literally, you know, the academy isn't open at the moment because of COVID and nor is the Sony building, but they're only 10 minutes away you know walking mm. so you know you go down there hang out see people like the wonderful julie weir who works at music for nations she's around the corner from relentless so you go and see shabs and say hi to julie <laughs> so you're never <laughs> yeah. really you're not actually far from the industry and i'm still and that's the thing that kind of makes me happy if i was kind of in education and just sat in an office somewhere saying i'm at a music school but not really there <laughs> that wouldn't really sit with yeah. me too well but but it's also something that's really good to offer up to, to people that come to the academy and that connection. So it makes it very real. And it makes me feel like that when I'm trying to help with education and music business education, that, you know, people are getting something that's realistic and can genuinely help them. Mm. So, yeah, that's, that's it's good. It's good fun. Busy, but fun. And just because, like, as you say, like you're you're still surrounded, obviously, by like music industry people. But like in terms of the the students and stuff, like I've spoken to other teachers before, but where they're maybe like teaching like history or something like that, it's not necessarily music. But where that's very like front and center for you, do people go like obviously like even on like your your like bio on on the website, like you've obviously mentioned you've been in bands and stuff. So do people like do your students like? go out and seek your band and then come out and be like, oh, I wasn't expecting your band to be like this. Or do they become fans of what you've done? Um, I think some of them like what I do. Um, but if anything, you, what you're really doing when you put the bar on the website is showing that you've been there and done it. So it's, it's mm. about credibility. And I think, you know, if you're trying to teach someone about the music industry, you probably owe it to them to at least have been in it on a professional level. Yeah, yeah. So normally they'll go out and, and have a bit of a listen. I think most people just think, wow, I don't believe you sing like that when you look like that. And that's fine too. <laughs> I'm okay with that. But yeah, I mean, I, I talk about it to the students because I should, you know, and I'm very proud of what I've yeah. done. But also in the same respect, like I said, it comes down to, you know, people need to know that if they're going to be trying to get music education, they get it from people that have actually done stuff in the industry at a high level. Hmm. And one of the things that I wanted to pull up about like your bio that grabbed my attention is that that you kind of worked with um, Activision Blizzard like on the Guitar Hero and DJ Hero sort of stuff. Yeah. So how did that kind of come about, and like what was your role within that world? So I was basically um, a music coordinator, so I was helping source and license the songs for the games. So I worked hmm. with the music team in America with an amazing guy called Tim Riley who's now at Spotify, uh, Brandon Young. Um, in the UK, there's a guy called Sergio Pimentel. Just this brilliant team of really good people that just wanted to, you know, get good music onto good games. Um, mm. I was lucky enough to sort of fall into that, um, you know, through again sort of moving 
moving on from sort of being in the band um, and the team kind of expanded when the DJ Hero thing was becoming, you know, it was in development. And it was actually like my wife's friend actually that worked at Activision in facilities and she was talking about it all. And she's like, oh, we should speak to Colin. We should see if Colin wants to come and have an interview or whatever. And I was like, well, yeah, I love video games. Put it on. <laughs> yeah. um, and then it went from there. Um, and again, it was just like a, a brilliant time. So were you like, were they kind of saying we want this song, we want this song, and then you were going out or were you kind of pitching songs to them? How it's did both. That kind of I mean, work? it's, it's, you know, there's songs that they want on there. There's songs that you can make in terms of suggestions. There's songs that are pitched to you. It's, you know, no one's sitting there thinking I need to follow this exact agenda. It's just mm. everybody talks about, you know, music, you know, new music that's coming out, who's doing what, can we get an exclusive on a record or something or, you know, and get it on the game, all sorts of stuff, you know? So there's, there's a lot of different factors that get a song on there. Um, and some of it is, you know, it's got to be popular, you know, for some people yeah. in other areas. No, it, you know, cause you've got to have the cool stuff as well for the cool kids. So what you're really trying to do and probably why the track selection was so large was that you're actually trying to make sure that you've got this quite wide ranging, amount of music within this particular genre that's going to please lots of people um yeah so it was fun because of that and uh, on a, like a personal note i think i can't remember what iteration it was of the game but there was one where like uh they have prayer for the refugee by rise against on it oh yeah and that was that was like my life at uni like yeah. i wanted to perfect that yeah. so. rise against are amazing amazing band so yeah and i think i might have worked on that one I think I think that might be four or five. I yeah. Remember. But anyway, yeah, there's quite a few of them. But well, like, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, like, were you kind of because obviously it became like a huge kind of like franchise and and things like that. Yeah. But like, on the surface of it, it seems like a very kind of niche game. So were you kind of surprised at how big it became? No, because I came in when it was big. So right, okay, they were just about to release um, number four. Um, and the franchise was growing and growing and growing, and then they're expanding into DJ Hero, and what have you. So they needed to make the team bigger because it was such a success. Um, mm. There's been games like it before. There was a Japanese Konami game which escapes the name. I escape the name right now, but you had a plastic guitar on that. I remember being around my friend's house on PlayStation Import, playing Smoke on the Water. Um, it's probably called Rock Something or other. But anyway. Um, yeah, there was a Konami game that did it before that and it had the plastic guitars. Mm. But I think Guitar Hero just sort of took it into the mainstream. Right, okay, cool. Um, and then just in terms of like your kind of going back into like music and stuff, like after 100 Reasons, we'll, we'll get on to obviously the new projects in a minute, but was there kind of anything that you were working on like beforehand or were you kind of more focusing on, on the career kind of side of things? Um, I don't think I was actively writing. Mm. I had people that would say, you know, do you want to come and be in my band or do you want to do a bit of this and a bit of that? And most of the time I kind of said no. And I think it was because it wasn't about sort of focusing on the career necessarily. It's just that it's very, you know, you don't want to kind of just kind of go right here. I am straight into another band or something and trying to get something yeah. like that off the ground because it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of energy. And it's hard to justify when you're, when you're, you know, when your band isn't paying the mortgage and you now have to do other things to pay the mortgage, which is fine. When you do that, it's very difficult to justify to your partner that you actually am now going to sort off on tour for three weeks. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to practice every night and those kinds of things for, for no real return. Because regardless of whether you've been in a band or not previously that have, might have had success, you're still starting. You might not be quite at square one, but you may as well be because it's, yeah, yeah. it's the combination of everybody in hundred reasons that makes hundred reasons that band. And when you're the only element of that and you move into another project, it's very, you know, you can do that. Of course you can do what you want, but in terms of trying to make that something that's commercially viable, it's going to be just as difficult as breaking a new band again, um, mm. potentially. So from that perspective, yeah. it was a few bits of guesting here and there, a few bits and bobs. But generally, I don't think I was actively out 
to sort of to do stuff i was just yeah just working i mean i think with the they fell from the sky stuff i mean that started a long long time ago um mm. so it wasn't sort of too far behind 100 reasons anyway literally in, okay in it's embryonic stages um it's taken a long time to get to where it is now yeah but that's you know that's fine well in in that terms and like as you say like that kind of maybe not like wanting to jump into something straight away sort of thing but obviously they fell from the sky as you say they fell from the skies has been kind of wearing away in the background for a little while so like why the decision now to kind of like put a bit more focus and energy into it when as you say like it may not necessarily be a band that's going to be paying the bills sort of thing like is it just kind of time and place like that or the you've kind of maybe got that itch to kind of do something again or um, is it just a bit of fun like where does it, it all come into it's it because it's actually finished and <laughs> it's taken such a long time to sort of come around and you know it's been different iterations of songs bits of re-recording here and there it's taken a long time to actually happen and you know, when you make, you know, you make music because you, you love it, you want to make music. And then when you make music, mm. you want people to hear it. So we're in a position where, I mean, the album was actually finished probably about a year and a half ago. Like actually. Oh, done. wow. Okay. And we spent a long time trying to figure out what we were going to do with it. And then um, Tommy Lynham, looks after bands like Vex Red and what have you, he sort of, we've known him from way back. He was like, you know, well, I'll just put it out. And there's no expectations on touring and shows and things like that, because again, you know, Jason's in Bullet for My Valentine now. You know, full-time jobs. Dave Draper, who's the producer, you know, he works all the time. He's just finished recording, like, the latest Wild Hearts record. So mm. these everyone's busy. So, again, it yeah. comes back down to, well, we just want people to hear it, but we don't want to get in a van for a few weeks and try and plug away. You know, obviously you can't tour right now regardless, but you know what I mean. Yeah. It's about being able to just go have something be released and have people hear it. And it's quite nice because mm. it's, for us, it's been like done for quite a while, but people have been getting really excited about it. And it's nice because I'm, I'm very proud of it. I think it's a bloody amazing record, in fact. Mm. So from that perspective, you know, getting people to hear it for the first time, that makes you, you know, seeing other people excited and listening to it and enjoying it and that kind of thing is really good fun. So mm. there's that element. But as far as kind of, again, you know, you do something creative and you want people to hear it. It's as simple as that yeah yeah and because obviously like obviously we, we've spoken about it at length like 100 reasons was a big part of like your life and obviously this is obviously a very different project but as i've mentioned you've got a very distinctive voice and and that still shines through on this new material but like i don't know is there kind of maybe not because you've kind of lived the experience and and whatever but is there any sense of like tentative nerves of putting this new stuff out or are you just excited to get it out? I'm just glad to get it out. I don't get nervous about stuff. People are going to like it or, or not. And <laughs> I think if you're going to get that sort of pressure over something that if, if you're willing to put something out publicly, you have to understand that people out there will hate it and people will like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just have to understand that. And I just don't care enough about <laughs> whether people hate it i don't if someone doesn't like something honestly it's fine it really is yeah yeah people do plenty of stuff all the time that annoys everybody so a bit of music if you're going to get upset about a bit of music or a bit of music you've released and someone not liking it you probably just need to get over yourself um <laughs> because enough. it is it's fun and it's it's good to do and yes you know at times you're talking about things that are personal but that doesn't mean that you need to take something personal if someone dislikes it. So when I'm releasing something, I, I'm. It, it's not to say I don't care what people think because I want people to, you know, be stupid if you said, oh, I don't care whether people like it or not because yeah, it's genuinely nice when people do say they like it, which means you do care because <laughs> um, mm. otherwise you'd be like, you wouldn't be all fussed either way. So, yeah, I mean, you put something out, that's what's going to happen. People will like it, people won't. I don't worry about it, I suppose. I do care. Yeah. I don't worry about it. And just in terms of They Fell From The Sky, like, obviously, like, 100 Reasons was a heavy band, but this feels very, like a lot more kind of like 
raw and kind of like I guess like dense is a way that I I describe it in terms of like it's like it feels like a heavy record. So for you, like, was that kind of an interesting kind of challenge to to take upon? Like after doing the stuff with Hundred Reasons, where yes, it was heavy, but there was hooky elements to it. To going to something that was a bit more kind of driving and raw. Um. I don't think you've heard the whole record in fairness, Tim. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the single itself is just a taste of what's to come. And yeah, there is melody that is huge on that record. Like huge. Right. Okay. Huge. It still maintains the heaviness though. I've always liked heavy and melodic anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Thing I've enjoyed. So it's just the style of um, creativity is different to 100 Reasons. I think it's felt 100 Reasons a bit more rock, whereas this album, I would say, is a bit more metal. But Yeah, it, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting yeah, at. But for of. me, I mean, I like heavy music. So for me, it, it, again, it comes down to, do you like it? Yes, all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm going to release or work on a jazz record anytime soon, but if, <laughs> if anybody had done that and I really liked it, then that would happen. It's just about yeah, yeah. Does does the music tick boxes for me? Is it enjoyable? Is it what you know? What straightforward? I'm a simple person, mm. like I said. And like as you mentioned, like obviously members of this band are obviously busy doing other things, and and you've obviously got your own career and things. But have you kind of talked about like potentially going out and doing shows once that's allowed, or are you kind of? Just sort of seeing where the land lies at the moment. Um, at the moment, we won't be doing shows. So we haven't agreed to do shows in any shape or form. It doesn't okay. It doesn't mean that we won't. But again, it's it's such a weird thing to say because you, if, you, if you get the right offer and the show feels right, then there's a good chance that you, you can't say, you can't say never because that's just the dumbest answer yeah, in the yeah. world. But at the moment, the the appetite to go out and play the record isn't there from us just yet because we're busy doing other right. things. And the point is at the moment is to just get people to hear it. I think once the album's out and you can really gauge how people, how interested people are in what it is, then maybe we might think it's worth doing some shows. But I think at the moment, we just have the mindset of we've released the first single. We've got another one out, I think on the 9th of May. And then there's another one after that and then an album. So mm. I think it's too early to say whether shows would be something worth doing because we still don't know what the audience is yet and how big they are to make it without sounding again mercenary, but to make it, you know, worth the investment of time to, to go and yeah. do it. And that's the main thing. It has to be worth the time. Because if you think about how busy Jason is, you've got to rehearse for these things, you know, you've got to get yeah. five people in the same room to, to make it happen which is difficult in itself because none of us live anywhere near each other. So, <laughs> yeah. so there's that. We're not all just around the corner. So there's a few sort of shifting elements, I think. I mean, and I always, I never say never. I like the idea of, you know, well, if it happens, it happens. But at the moment, I mm. think we're just enjoying people's mostly positive reaction to, to what's, what's, what is the first single. And the second single is yeah. even better. So there you go. And just to kind of like on that, like, is that something that you're kind of excited about? Because like, there is that element of unknown, like, because, like, I guess, for instance, with 100 Reasons, like, by the time things really got going, obviously, you kind of, as you said, you had a, a fan base, that, which was quite fairly loyal. But with this, you don't know where those parameters are. So, yeah, does that kind of... Yeah, I think it's just a... Does that make sense? Yeah, it's kind of like a test. And it's not like a test of water thing. I mean, I love this record. This record's amazing. So for me, it's 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 just put stuff out there. And yeah, I suppose there is a little bit of test to see if, you know, what, what the audience is now and how engaged they are. But I think, um, you know, for my own thought process, it's just more about having people listen to it because we've been sat on it for such a long time. <laughs> mm. yeah, that's fair enough well Colin I've taken up way too much of your time so I really appreciate it but um, how I do like to end these is ask my guests uh, what their favourite song is but with a twist and it might be a bit difficult because obviously you haven't really done any live shows in a while but we'll give it a go and see if you've got an answer um, but what was your favourite 100 Reasons song that you'd like to play live and why? This Mess 
It's my favourite Hundred Reasons song. It's on nice. Kill Your Own. And I like to play it live because it's generally not me singing the chorus, but I, just, um, <laughs> I like to do the high bits. But I just always just love the sound of that song. I love the melodies in it. I love the guitars in it. Just um, I love that song. There's other songs Perfect. I love, but I love that song. Brilliant. Well, Colin, as I said, thank you very right, much Tim. for your time again. And really appreciate it. Take care. You too. Thanks for your time. Bye. Cheers. Bye. So there we have it, folks. Again, a huge thank you to Colin for taking some time out of his busy schedule to have a little chat with me. As always, if you want to find what Colin's up to and what's going on with They Fell From The Sky, you can do so on all various social media platforms, which will be linked in the description notes of this episode um i'm going to keep this short and sweet so yeah as always your support for this show is greatly appreciated if you want to keep up with us follow us on social media it's just underscore and underscore insight on both instagram and twitter and then just an insight podcast on facebook um yeah as i say i'm going to keep this short and sweet so thank you again for some by the justin insight podcast and i will see you soon